At the end, you should play uh, Carrie Underwood's I Don't Even Know My Last Name. men monopolizing mansplaining luckily we're here to provide a relief from the mindless drone of men explaining to women how to be a proper lady and instead we are here to explain to men how to be a proper man welcome to mansplaining an explication of hypermasculinity through popular culture i'm your co-host Brittany walker and i'm your other co-host kay grossman and we welcome to the show today our resident diehard expert dr savannah <laughs> i got my phd in diehard you can just call me Savannah, though. That's pretty hard rock. <laughs> That's it's intense. The only time anyone has ever said that about me. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about 1988's Die Hard, directed by John McTiernan, who you may also know from The Thomas Crown Affair or The Predator. Uh, it clocks in at two hours and 11 minutes, and the budget for this movie was $28 million, and it made an astounding $81 million in return. Uh, this movie is also known as the best Christmas movie due to its setting and excellent musical score. It is just the best movie, period. Some people have said that it's my favorite movie, but it's not my favorite movie because favorite implies that maybe there's some kind of bias inherent in that and it's a movie that you really like. It's just the best movie. <laughs> All right, so our... Our resident scholar, Dr. Savannah, is going to be providing the summary for us today. So go ahead and take it away. What is Die Hard about, Dr. Savannah? So many things, but let me set the stage for you. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. It's Christmas Eve, 1988, and John McClane, a New York City cop, flies to Los Angeles to reconcile with his career wife, Holly. Come on to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. And his daughter, Lucy. Now, some might say that there's also a son in this film, but those are the same people that probably think there's a fifth Die Hard movie, and they, like the son, are dead to us. So John is picked up by his limo driver, Argyle, and is taken to Holly's Christmas party at Nakatomi Plaza. From there, Holly and John are separated. As Hans Gruber, international terrorist, takes all 30 partygoers hostage and murders Holly's boss, Mr. Takagi. John then takes on the terrorists, diehard style, with the help of Sergeant Al Powell and the hindrance of the FBI and LAPD brass. John takes down Hans and learns a little bit about himself along the way. It's a beautiful summary. Thanks. I know you worked hard on it. I did. <laughs> she actually wrote it out ahead of time, which is something that your normal co-hosts never do. Absolutely not. So why our summaries are so, so bad. Congrats to Dr. Savannah. She's clearly done her homework. Yeah. Oh, if by watching Die Hard of 15 million times is doing your homework, then yeah. But like how many of those times were you drunk? Mm, like a few. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I hear that you've come up with like a very succinct list 
of what specifically makes a Die Hard movie, which I think is going to be important because we're probably going to be talking about some of the sequels or the trilogy of Die Hard. So to kind of set this up early in the podcast, I think is really important. So what makes Dr. Savannah, what makes a Die Hard movie a Die Hard movie? So this is a teeny bit controversial, but I tend to be in the Dan O'Brien of Cracked.com school of thought, which is that to be a Die Hard film, two things must be... Uh, two things must be satisfied. First, it has to be a regular run-of-the-mill cop against superior forces. Now, this is important because in later, quote-unquote, die-hard movies, the fourth die-hard movie, the cop takes on superhuman action hero powers like flying a truck into a helicopter or a police car into a helicopter kind of thing. That is not a diehard thing. That is not how diehard rules. Second, it must take place within one continual set piece. And this will be controversial for the third diehard film, which is a great film. Um, and you could argue it takes place within New York City, which is treated like a continual set piece. But Again, controversial. And that is what makes a Die Hard. All right. So now that we've established what Die Hard's about, what makes a Die Hard movie, let's kind of go into our analysis of Die Hard itself. Uh, the first question that I think is really important to kind of engage with is who is the hero in this movie? Because I think once we establish who is the hero, we're kind of going to be establishing what the movie is trying to tell us about men or women or marriage or being a working woman. Uh, So who do you guys think is the hero of this film? I mean, the obvious choice is John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, who is the counterpoint to Alan Wickman's Hans Gruber. Iconic role, by the way. Yeah, I would agree that Bruce Willis is the hero, but that he's supported by two and only two secondary heroes, Sergeant Al Powell, played by the guy from Family Matters. Call Winslow. Thank you. You mean just the character from Family Matters? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Featured in Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Family Matters truthers. Um, and Argyle, the limo driver. Um, I think that it's important to note that Argyle is sort of the more shallow of the three heroes well he's also the youngest true and and i think that that's critical because my overall thesis if i can just tip my hand here is that at the beginning of the film john mcclain loves women loves holly but doesn't respect them and doesn't respect her and he's supported by argyle who also loves women who is supposed to take his limo drop john off and then head to las vegas but he doesn't He stays behind and sits in the parking garage and calls his girlfriend and talks to her on the super 1988 car phone. Argyle is is pretty much a bit player. You see him in a couple scenes. He is pretty much unaware of the terrorists attacking because he's very invested in himself, invested in like partying in the back of this limo. There's loud music playing. So he doesn't he literally doesn't hear the bullets firing until he's tipped off by the news anchor on the radio. Mm -hmm. And then he turns his radio to listen to John talking to Hans. So then he's dialed in. But I think that it's essential to point out that Argyle is very self-involved, is very much focused on the now and isn't married, doesn't have a 
connection to a woman the way that Al does, which we'll talk about in a second. And then at the end, Argyle has one shining moment where he notices the getaway car, which is an ambulance, coming out of a big truck. And he notices that this is definitely wrong, thinks this is probably a terrorist, smashes his car (laughs) into the ambulance and punches the other young black guy in the face. I think that this is important because I'm connecting relationships to women with competence in killing terrorists. (laughs) (laughs) And Argyle is not the most competent. He's pretty self-involved. He talks to his lady, clearly loves her, is into her, but isn't spending Christmas Eve with her, isn't demonstrating anything to show that he is really um, progressing in this relationship with his lady. First is Sergeant Al Powell, who we first meet in a convenience store. And Al is purchasing Twinkies. And at that point, the convenience store clerk says, are these Twinkies for you? And he says, no, they're for my wife who's super pregnant, which is important because I believe that Al Powell's wife exists. She is pregnant. She exists to root him in this very specific category of men who love and respect women. He's buying her Twinkies on Christmas Eve. He's going to bring them home to her. He's now, basically the does she man. ever yeah. get the Twinkies, okay. though? So here, my partner maintains that Al's wife does not exist. I think that's just cynical. So he's just lying about, like, the Twinkies are actually for him, that uh-huh. he's going to scarf down in his car? But there's, yeah. like, literally no reason we have to believe that. Other than if it's, I mean, and I don't think that this is the point that my partner was making. Um, <laughs> wow, I guess, this is, I guess we should make, like, a connection here, like, Ian of... The oh print yes. and play podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah, you made if you you awake a little listener to this you're podcast network. Um, I don't it's think a very this is incestuous the point. podcast here. <laughs> I don't think this is the point he was making, but the point that the clerk is making is a fat joke. Alice fat. All the Twinkies are for him, but I believe the Twinkies are for the wife, and I think that that is borne out in the rest of the film because Al is the most competent. At no point does he question John. He immediately thinks this guy's a cop, and when his um. His deputy, the deputy, the deputy sergeant who goes, who's a step ahead of Dwayne T. Robinson, played by Paul Gleason. Very um, good. I try. Um, who actively questions? He doesn't just question that this is. I mean, clearly this is happening, but he questions um, that John McClane is actually a cop. It's actually who it says it, he is, and he is very reticent to give John any help. Uh, and he, along with the um, the two FBI agents flying out of the helicopter who are casually discussing discussing what's the appropriate number of casualties they could they could um, explain away basically like okay about 25 percent of casualties die which would be like eight people they're kind of meh. in fact they say I can live with that collateral damage <laughs> yeah um, so you get so I, I think Al is counterpoint. From, so Al is still representative of the institution. He's not the lone wolf the way John McClane is. Good point. But he's the counterpoint to the institution, which is so cavalier about life, about other people's lives, whereas Al is humanized by that Twinkie interaction, by his pregnant wife, by some of the tragic backstory he tells to John McClane. It will, I think, come into play as we continue discussing this pregnant wife. And I think that she is a specific signal to the audience that Sergeant Alpal is a good guy. He's got this wife. Um, but let's back up. Let's talk about John. And let's talk about Holly. Because I think you could also argue that Holly is a hero. Um, Brittany, did you want to? Yeah. So, you know, if you... 
take apart, kind of step away from the terrorist, heavily, you know, action drama part of it, and think of Holly in terms of second wave feminism, in terms of a woman who is not just a wanting to be a wife, but also wanting to be a mother, and also wanting to be a working woman. Um, the cliche I, of having it all. Yeah. I. She is that cliche. Yeah. How does she do it? But she, I mean, but she doesn't. She says, forget you, John. Well, I don't think that's because she can't be a wife. I think that's because John can't be a, a, the husband that she wants. Fair point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was it was him that kind of left the family. Yeah. The family splinters at him. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in that way you can argue that, you know, she is the hero of this film. Um, and I think we're going to be getting into the evidence of that a little bit more when we talk about the ending in full detail. Um, so I'm just going to kind of open that door that maybe, you know, yes, it's possible that all these men are the hero, but also Holly can be the hero of this film as well. But even if Holly is the hero, um, I, I'd like to make the argument that John McClane is kind of a feminized action hero, at least in the respect to the other action heroes we've seen recently, um, specifically Maverick and Top Gun. Um, in Top Gun, Maverick at one point sa- expressly says... You don't have time to think up there in reference to to the action scene. Whereas in the midst of the action, John McClane is employing himself to think, to think this through. Um, John McClane also isn't always right, and he's going to admit that. Um, Early on in the movie, he has an argument with Holly about the splintering of their family. And he admits wrongdoing. He says to the camera, or he says to himself, like, oh, how mature. That's great, John. Good job. Very mature. You know, sarcastic yeah. way. Um, and that's, I think that's really important to to his development as a hero. I mean, even going back to what we said about Top Gun and grief, and, you know, we talked about, like, the ability not to cry. You know, there's that scene, and I know, Savannah, you think this is a really pivotal pivotal scene. I think it's the for- whole thing. It's the whole movie. It happens in the bathroom when his feet are bleeding and he's crying. Yeah. And he said... He know, says... So he's talking to Al, and here we go back to Al as the husband and as the father. And he and they're, they've had this kind of back and forth about little Al Jr. playing on the swing set with little Lucy. Because, um, again, John McLean has one child. And there's a part where John says, Holly has heard something along the lines of, Holly has heard me say, I love you a thousand times. But she's never heard me say, I'm sorry. Tell her that, um, that she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me say I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Al. I want you to tell her and that. And Al, will you tell her this? John and Al, says, you know, Al again, as the, the supporting sidekick says, you know, you can tell yourself, buddy, um... But I think that that is the real crux of the film because then that's it. John goes radio silent. He goes to take on Carl, who is the most physical. He's a Carl is sort of the the most physically formidable of the terrorists. And from what I gather in real life, a ballerina. I did not know that. but um, <laughs> That's what it said on. Um, he's very graceful. Maybe in the NPR article. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
And then that's when John realizes that Hans is not, in fact, a terrorist, but that he is an exceptional thief. And the point I wanted to make about that scene is the fact that we do see him cry. Mm -hmm. And going back to what Kay said about being a feminine action hero, that's that's praised. Like, Mm -hmm. we see him as more human. And going to what we're going to be talking about next, you know, that is when – that's how we – you know, ultimately go to the resolution uh, and, you know, them getting, them being the husband and wife getting back together is because he is being feminine. And the terrorist being defeated. Yeah, he is displaying feminine qualities. And I think it's really, I know this was a shift that was happening in the 80s where, you know, you're starting to see these action heroes be feminized and these action heroes, um, show emotion and you'll see that a lot in lethal weapon too but i think it's funny because a lot of the rest of this movie is very indicative of hardline conservative politics Reagan-era yeah. politics but then you get john mcclain as a f- emotionally a- as an action hero that has emotion so it's it's a weird dichotomy right there where you have the very hardline traditionalist like us versus them lone wolf Call it calls back continually to 1950s cowboy movies, Yippee Kaye, motherfucker, etc. Yeah, him taking on the persona of Roy Rogers, um, having the baddies be Eastern European. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a lot of of that conservative play, playing on conservative fears um, and Reagan era politics, while still having this action hero that belies a lot of those characteristics. But it's, I think it's a subversion of the Reagan era politics because at one point it's so the, the big twist in the film is that Hans isn't a terrorist at all. He is part of a German terrorist network, but we learned from one of the newscasters that this is not um, a plot as a part of his terrorist network. And at, at one point he's talking to the FBI guys and he says, you know, the U.S. enjoys rattling its saber for its own ends. Let it rattle its saber for mine. And he lists all these different terrorist groups, brothers and sisters in arms, that he wants freed before he'll give up the um, hostages. But it's a fake. It's a double cross. He doesn't actually care. <laughs> he just needs them to be distracted. Well, he specifically needs the State Department to get involved so the FBI will come. And the FBI, when they come, they cut the power of the building which will unlock the eighth lock in the um, safe. So it's literally all about the money, which I think is actually a critique of America in the 80s. If you look at the two sort of, um, you know, if if we accept that Reagan-era politics had a lot to do with businessmen and, you know, there's definitely a little bit of mocking of like, cocaine users and like there's a naked woman in the beginning that i think is very not on par with the rest of the film she she doesn't fit in a, in a way that i think again is like is maybe intentional or is maybe just something sexy happening in an 80s action I mean, film it might just be kind of like setting up the debauchery that's going on it's a company christmas party right, right. the company's had a very successful year but i think the important bit there is looking at two businessmen mr chikagi and ellis and mr chikagi is very warm. You get his bio in the beginning of the film. And and we were talking, I think it was UK that brought up, why do they mention that Mr. Takagi was interned in a Japanese internment camp? 
And I think it's, again, a, cur- a critique of American politics because you see Takagi as someone to be respected. Holly tries to protect him. When Hans enters the room, he demands that Mr. Takagi give himself up. And you see Holly with her long fingernails trying to hold him back. And, and I think that that's intentional. But eventually, of course, Mr. Takagi does the right thing and outs himself. And he's killed for it. But contrast that with the way that Ellis is killed. Ellis, who is so coked up that he literally is drinking Coca-Cola while having this super boisterous interaction with Hans Gruber. He's very full of himself. Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. A complete and total caricature of the worst of 80s American excess. And you see him again, killed at his weakest point. He's also killed because of his bravado. Because sure, he's true. um and and because he doesn't listen to John McClane. So <laughs> Right. Um, or Holly. <laughs> or Holly. He basically doesn't listen to anyone. He's He's killed because he's the worst kind of lone wolf, I guess. But but the point is that it's I don't think it actually is about supporting um American politics in this. And um you see that too, I think, with the two FBI agents that Brittany was talking about, um, Johnson and Johnson, no relation. <laughs> they, <laughs> that at one point, um, John McLean literally calls them macho assholes. And the one Johnson is laughing about what a great time he had shooting people in the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So I know, and I think this was such a wonderful thing that you said, Dr. Savannah, when you said... <laughs> This is a movie about love. John loves women, but he doesn't respect women. And I think that you can start seeing that at the very beginning with all of these very hyperbolic shots of Bruce looking at women up and down, looking at posters of women, you know, just a reminder of he loves women, but you say he doesn't respect women. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on that point? I think a lot of that, it's funny, I hadn't noticed all the leering, because <laughs> confession, I have seen this film mostly from um, the scene where Hans Gruber enters and on. I haven't, I've seen the beginning of the film probably only 20 times instead of only a billion. <laughs> and, and the first few times that I saw it, I didn't see the beginning, which sort of paints the film very differently because the beginning is all the setup about John and his marital problems and why his shoes are off. <laughs> Um, and in the beginning of the film, he definitely is full on leering at several ladies at this. Ogling. Yes. <laughs> at this totally excessive Christmas party. Um, but he learns by the end to, uh, value Holly. I mean, we talk about why he's stuck at the party and it's obviously because he wants to rescue Holly and he, I think that he only has a few interactions with her. One is the beginning fight where he's fighting with Holly and, um, or no, sorry, let's go back. One is when he walks into the lobby and they have this super retro looking, um, staff directory and he types in very slowly, MC looking for McLean, looking for Holly McLean on this directory and he doesn't find her and he doesn't question it. He knows immediately what has happened and he types in, G for Gennaro. And there she is. Her maiden name. Her maiden name. And it's immediately set up as, um, you know, I don't think the film, and you guys can tell me if I'm offbeat on this, I don't think the film is playing that as a bad thing. 
I think that it's just another example of how he's losing her. I mean, it is, it does save her in the end, essentially, because between her adopting her maiden, we adopting her maiden name, and the fact that in her office, she thinks to remove the picture or hide the picture of her with John, John McClane and her family. Be- between that, the prescience of both of those, it actually saves her because she's not connected with John. Um, and the terrorists are killing people that are connected with John because, you know, they think it's some, some larger group trying to undermine their efforts. And John tries to protect her and his family, I think partly by adopting the Roy Rogers pseudonym, but he doesn't ultimately need to until um, the totally skeezy, very gross newscaster dude, who I will note only finds out who John is because of a female coworker, a colleague, um, outs him as John McLean on the air. And if she had been known as Holly McLean, she would have been killed. Hans would have made the connection. Yeah. Right. But she's not. So her last name change saves her. And throughout the film, um, she can, she, like Brittany said earlier, steps up. She, she asks for a couch because one of her colleagues is pregnant. Um, and then at the end, after they've had, at, at some point, I think it's because of watching the TV. Yeah. The, um, skeezy news anchor pushes his way into the McLean residence, the Janeiro residence, whatever you want to call it, where the two kids are with their housekeeper by threatening to call um, INS on the housekeeper. And I don't know what we think about that, but I think probably, again, a critique of like American politics and um, hardline immigration statuses. But at that point, Hans Gruber, I think, makes the connection because he flips the picture back over and that's when he sees McLean, who he had met on the rooftop. Yeah. Yeah. They'd met previously. So there was, it's not just, she sees this random right. gentleman. It's, they, they'd met at this previously. Hans knows what John looks like by the end of the film. But I think it's interesting. Um, and you could read this in two different ways. And I've seen it read two different ways. At the end of the movie, when everyone's being reunited, um, when McLean's reunited with Holly, she, he goes to introduce her by her maiden name, which I thought was kind of nice. Um, and how is my wife Holly? Holly Gennaro. Holly McLean. Hello, Holly. You got yourself a good man. You take good care of him. She quickly corrects him and says, "No, I'm Holly McLean." And so, a lot of people, a lot of the criticism that I've read has read this as, "Well, she's rejecting the second wave feminism. She's just rejecting her role as a queer woman to go back." And we domesticate herself. Um, and I think that there's... I, I know, Brittany, you had a point... You were going to make a point about what an alternative reading of that could be. Well, me and Savannah... Dr. Savannah, excuse me. <laughs> uh, got Only about not You so proper title. <laughs> yeah. We have business cards. Um, got into a pretty, pretty heated argument uh, via Messenger about the two different ways to read this. And I kind of fall under... I think it's kind of a view of dom- domestication, um, just because of what taking, you know, a husband's last name means. I think it's probably also interesting to note that of the two of us that are married here, one of us took our husband's last name and I, you did not, so. I did not take my husband's name. And, and that's because the history of it is that it's uh, a symbol for ownership. Um, you know, when you, you know, it's essentially, it was used to 
denote property right yeah basically property property like whose property are you and when she says no it's you know mccain mclean that's what i meant to say mclean um she's essentially saying i'm his property again no like no you know i'm not my individual self i'm my property and um what i think is interesting here is this semester I'm a grad English student for those listeners who don't know. Um, and this semester I'm taking a film studies class where we're um, studying studio films. And we just finished watching Casablanca. And in class, we were talking about the ending and how the ending had to end the way it did, mostly because of code, um, because of production code. And at the time, um, you know, in, in Casablanca, she is an adulterer. <laughs> you know, she cheats on her husband and we can't condone women cheating on their husbands. So at the end, she has to go back. She has to go with her husband. She cannot stay with Humphrey Bogart. And we see that time and time again, you know, with Titanic. Jack has to die at the end because if not, we would be saying that that's an okay thing to do. And that's why I think, you know, he he, meaning my professor, said something pretty poignant when he was talking about to a critic, and he said, the ending doesn't matter because the ending is just what has to happen at the end for it all to be right. Making it correct. Yeah. yeah I mean, morally. The circle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this, again, is conservative era Reagan politics. She has to redomesticate herself to follow those, that conservative opinion at the time. And I think, but I think the generous way to read this, the feminist way to read this is... The correct way to read this. Um, and okay, I'm Dr. Gonna, Savannah. And I'm going to go back to this because I, I was the one that I took, did take my husband's last name. And the reason I took my husband's last name is because one of the reasons, A, our last name sounded terrible hyphenated. <laughs> and B, it, because it was establishing us as a family unit. So I was establishing myself as a family unit. And I think that's what, when she, one of the, the generous or more feminist ways to read her correcting it is not that she's reestablishing herself as domestic as his property. It's reestablishing him as a part of the family unit. After all, she's split. The, the family unit is split with him. His child and his wife are the ones in LA. And she's the one that stayed in New York, um, not supporting his wife in this queer move. So maybe it is the way to read this is that he's re-es- being reestablished as part of the family unit and she is actively inviting him back into the family unit. I mean, that might be kind of, to read this as the feminist, a feminist point, or that's the way to read this as the feminist point. I think that if the last scene happened with no context, it it would be fair to argue one way or the other. But my, at least my thesis is that the whole film is pointing us towards men who respect women are more competent. Men who respect women know what's actually happening. They're able to defeat uh, a bunch of terrorists. So keep keep that in mind, gentlemen. Also, earlier in the film, when John gets into the limo with Argyle, Argyle is super pushy about what the deal is with John's personal life. And Argyle hits the nail on the head when he says, so what? Your lady moved out here for some big job and you didn't think she'd make it and you were wrong. And John basically says like, you know, shut up, but he's, yep, he's clearly shamed. Yeah. That's clearly exactly what happened. And at the end, he introduces her as Holly Gennaro as to Al, his, 
you know, somebody that he hugely respects now because he was the only one that stood by him other than Argyle. We didn't know about Argyle um, throughout the whole film. And he introduces her as Holly Gennaro because it's a signal to her that he gets it. It's it's not said with spite, which it's the first time that he's had an interaction with Holly. Um, that probably, hasn't ended poorly. That hasn't been spite since, um, you know, the very end where he rescues her with Alan Rickman from Alan Rickman. Which, like, <laughs> leave, feel free to just leave me with Alan Rickman, you know? <laughs> uh, not dangling off a building, but... Okay, so that brings me to the one piece of my theory that doesn't quite fit, which is the watch. She's given a gift from Mr. Takagi because she's so great at whatever it is that they yeah. do. As the Western <laughs> MBA student, I have no idea what this corporation does and how it's financed. Like, I kind of want to see their financial statements. No, I don't. Accounting scares me. But as as I know, you you just had to do the call out for being an English grad student, so I'm going to do the call out for being an MBA student. Go I have ahead. no idea. No idea how this company stays in business. But anyways, I would like I would like to have a more detailed um, well, apparently, whatever it is, she's great at it. She's, she gets she's this watch. At and at the very end, when Alan Rickman is dangling from the window, um, he's holding on to her by the watch. And John McLean removes the watch, and both the watch and Hans fall to their respective deaths. Um, I don't know what to make of that. Because the watch is a symbol for her financial independence from her competency and financial independence from John. Like clearly she's doing well enough at her job that she does not need his income. Yeah. She does not need him. She's living in a very expensive city alone and just got a gold Rolex. Rolex. So right, right. Ellis does specifically. And so that's Ellis is a jerk though. That's my argument is that maybe what the watch is actually symbolizing is yet again more like American excess greed. Because she's not she's like watch she doesn't even want to show John the watch. She yeah. doesn't even care. Ellis all about that watch. And Ellis sucks. So <laughs> I mean I, I think that's a decent way to read it to not read the watch as a symbol of feminism or independence or in or or anything like that it's just a symbol of greed and two competing views of like business yeah that might be exactly what it is so i think you know how we should end this is leaving a question with the viewers because i think one thing that we're kind of in disagreement with or we aren't very sure is how do you read that last scene where she corrects him on the last name and um i'm always trying to encourage academic conversation or non-academic or well i think it's always academic conversation it just doesn't have to be you know you know no sources need to be cited yeah um on this what do you guys think as viewers do you think this is you know her getting domesticated or do you think this is john finally beginning being able to become part of the family and i want to leave that to viewers to uh voice their opinions on yeah you can as always you can find us on facebook under mansplaining podcast we are on instagram under river city archery club um please check out the other podcasts um print and play uh if that's your jam it is a podcast that is dedicated to analyzing and Reviewing. Reviewing and print and play board games. And talking mad shit about print and play board games. <laughs> Absolutely. That would actually make Ian really mad because he's like, we like most of the board games. I They're know. all pretty great. They're all pretty great. I don't know why people are leaving such mad comments. <laughs> <laughs> Those are really good Ian impressions. Maybe we should just do the print and play podcast. Can we do like a mock print and play podcast? <laughs> Hello, I'm Ryan Walker. I'm pretty pretentious. 
We'll just do an episode where we switch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, that's great. All a right. Freaky Friday. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, guys. And thank you, Dr. Savannah, our guest. You can always find us at mansplainingpodcast.com or at rivercityarchery.club. It's a real website, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real website, comma, I promise. That's All a right. good tagline.